of verse 1 indicates chronological sequence in relation to historical events. Do you understand what I'm saying here? They assume that the word then in verse 1 indicates chronological sequence in relation to historical events. They read the text as if it said this, first, the events of chapter 19 will happen, which conclude with the second coming of Christ at the end of chapter 19. Then, or after that, the events of chapter 20 will happen in human history. But the text does not say that. Instead, the word then pertains to the sequence of the visions that John received. What John actually says is this, first, I saw the visions as described in chapter 19, and then, or after that, I saw the vision what I am about to tell you, that I'm about to tell you of. Uh, that is what the passage actually means. That is what the word then means. In fact, the word then in the Greek chi appears very many times in the book of Revelation. Sometimes it does indicate historical and chronological sequence, but oftentimes it just simply refers to a progression in the book of Revelation. First I saw this, and then I saw that. Um, that, that is what the meaning of the text is here. It's progression in the book of Revelation. In other words, the vision that John describes in chapter 20 came to him after the visions that he described in chapter 19. First he saw the one and then the other. But when we consider the order of things historically, you understand what I'm talking about here, not the order of things as they roll out to us in the book of Revelation, but the order of things as they have happened or will happen in human history, everything is reversed for Revelation 19, 17 through 21 describes the second coming of Christ, whereas Revelation 20, verse 1, describes things that happened at Christ's first coming upon his death, burial, and resurrection, and to the ascension of the Father's right hand. And so chapter 19 brings us right up to the time of the end when the Lord returns. But where does chapter 20 throw us? All the way back in human history to the beginning uh, when Christ first came. And if you are surprised at this phenomenon, then you really haven't been paying attention in the sermon series For the same thing has happened over and over again in the book of Revelation. And if you need just one other example, I would say go and read the end of chapter 11 and then read the beginning of chapter 12. Uh, For in chapter 11, we are clearly taken to the last day when the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. And then chapter 12 clearly takes us back to the time of Christ's birth. So there in that section is a transition between Revelation 11 and 12, but we are moved backward in human history to consider the church age from yet another perspective. This is what we call recapitulation, and the book of Revelation does it often. It is clearly doing it here in the transition between chapters 19 and 20. So when was Satan bound? I'll ask the question again. When was he bound? Will it be after Christ returns, as the premillennialists say? My answer is no. Will it be before Christ returns, but in our future, as the post-millennialists say? My answer is no. The answer is that Satan was bound at Christ's first coming, particularly when he rose from the dead and ascended to the Father's right hand. Notice that the text does not describe Satan as bound completely. Please pay very careful attention here, right now. The text does not describe Satan as bound completely but as bound specifically so that he might not deceive 
the nations any longer. That is what Revelation 20 verse 3 says. He is bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And I think this is a very crucial observation that is often overlooked. The passage does not describe Satan as bound completely so that he be utterly inactive, but bound specifically so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. The words any longer at the end of verse 3 indicate that, that before this moment, whenever it was, Satan did have the power to deceive the nations. But after this moment, whenever it was, that power that he once had was taken from him. He is now restrained in some way so that he cannot do this anymore. He was at this moment bound or restrained from doing what he once freely did, namely keeping the nations in darkness and in deception. Now, I'll ask you this. When in the history of redemption did this take place? Uh, The answer is that it took place at Christ's first coming. Before Christ came, just think of, of your Bibles, the Old and New Testament. Think of the history of redemption, how God has been working in the world ever since the fall of man. Think of it and, and ask yourself the question, when did this happen? When did the nations go from being kept in darkness to not kept in darkness any longer? I think we have to say that transition took place at Christ's first coming. Before Christ came, the nations were in darkness. The Gentiles, with very rare exceptions, and I think those exceptions were just meant to say something greater is coming. Indeed, the gospel will go to the nations someday. But with very rare exceptions, the the Gentiles did not have access to the promises of God. But after Christ came, the gospel of the kingdom was preached first to the Jews, but then to whom? To the Gentiles. This is the story of redemption. The nations were in darkness, Satan kept them there under the old covenant. Christ came, and where were the apostles sent? Where were the disciples sent? Go, therefore, and make disciples of the Jews. You know it well. Make disciples of all nations. And so this is when the binding of Satan did happen, at Christ's first coming, in order that the Great Commission might be fulfilled. There was a major transition that took place in the history of redemption from the gospel and the promises of the gospel being confined to Israel to the gospel going to the farthest places of the earth. Listen to the way that Paul speaks concerning this transition. When writing to the predominantly Gentile church in Ephesus, Gentile, of course, I'm talking about all who are not Jewish, ethnically speaking. So when writing to the predominantly Gentile church in Ephesus, here is what he said. He says to them, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time. What time is he referring to? the time prior to Christ's first coming. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's saying to the the Gentile Christians, don't you remember that prior to the coming of Christ, you Gentiles were left in the dark. You did not have access to these covenant promises. You did not have access to what Israel had access to under the old covenant, but now... But now, what does that signify except for that some great trans, uh, uh, transition has taken place? But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
This is one of the things accomplished at Christ's first coming. The nations now are brought near by the blood of Christ. The gospel goes forth to the nations, and the binding of Satan does correspond to this. What marked the change that Paul speaks of here? What was the event that prompted Paul to utter the words, but now? Was it not the arrival of the Christ and the proclamation of the gospel to the nations? So, friends, the binding of Satan described to us here in Revelation 20 corresponds to this. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The gospel is for not the Jewish people only. It is for them too, but it is for the world. Christ is the Savior, not of the Jewish people only, but of the world. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Satan was bound at Christ's first coming so that the kingdom of God might spread amongst all the nations of the world. And indeed, that is what has happened. Under the Old Testament, the gospel of the Christ was confined to Israel, but under the New, it has indeed spread throughout the whole world. You and I are sitting here today because of this. Why has this happened? Why the success of the spread of the gospel and of the kingdom of God throughout the whole world? Well, in part, it is because Satan was bound when Christ first came at his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension to his throne. This is part of the reason for the success of the spread of the gospel. It's because Satan has been bound or restrained by God so that it might be accomplished. Do you remember how in the book of Matthew, the unbelieving Jews began to say that Christ was casting out demons in the name of Satan or by the power of Beelzebul. Do you remember that whole episode there? Um, So Christ, a a part of what he did in his ministry, he cast out demons, and it was evident that he was doing so. It was so evident that at some point the, the Jewish people, the unbelieving Jews, could no longer deny the fact that he was doing it. It was just plain that that he was casting out demons and healing the sick and raising the dead. They could no longer argue with the fact of it. So they came to a kind of crossroads of sorts. They had to explain it somehow, and they had two options before them ultimately. Either they could acknowledge that this man is doing these things by the power of God, and thus therefore must confess that he is the Christ, or they could find another explanation for it. And so then what did they begin to do? They began to say, well, we acknowledge that you're doing it, but you're doing it not by the power of God, but actually in Satan's name, by his power. And what did Christ say in response to these things? Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? He's saying it's absurd. You're saying that, that Satan is now fighting against himself. Satan is casting out his demons. It's a ridiculous thought to begin with. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, whom do your sons cast them out by? In other words, if I'm doing this by Satan, what do you explain about your your Jewish brothers who are doing it, who are disciples of mine? Therefore, they will be your judges at the end of time. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and here is what I want you to hear. If it is by the Spirit of God or the power of God that I cast out demons then it is evident that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Do you hear it? 
that Jesus himself taught that what he was doing at his first coming in the casting out of demons was evident to the fact that he was in the process of binding the strong man. That is what Christ meant by this. He was saying to the non-believing Jews, Satan's kingdom is not divided against himself, but instead you are witnessing before your very eyes the inbreaking of the kingdom of God upon the kingdom of Satan. Jesus was saying, when you see me cast out demons and when you see your sons do it, those Jews who were disciples of Christ, it is a demonstration of the fact that the kingdom of God has come in power. Jesus said, in other words, I have come to plunder Satan's house, this world of which he is prince. And what you are witnessing now is a demonstration of the fact that he is being bound so that I might plunder it. And so just as a robber would bind a homeowner before proceeding to steal the homeowner's possessions, so too Christ came into this world and bound Satan so that he might now plunder all that once belonged to him. What belonged to Satan prior to Christ's first coming? The nations did. And yet the promise to the Messiah was that God would give him the nations as his heritage, Psalm chapter 2. And so this binding of Satan perfectly corresponds to Christ's first coming and the mission that he did accomplish there. The binding of Satan at Christ's first coming also corresponds to the great commission given by Christ to his disciples. Listen carefully to the great commission, which is so familiar to you, but I want you to listen to it with this topic in mind. And Jesus came to his disciples and said to them, All authority, do you hear it? All authority in heaven and also where and on earth has been now given to me. I inserted now in order to emphasize the idea here. It has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the disciples of Christ obeyed the great commission confidently in part because they knew that authority had been taken from Satan and given to whom? To Christ the Lord. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, he said. Satan was bound at Christ's first coming. And and do you remember Jesus' words from our study of the Gospel of John when he said to his disciples, this is him in his earthly ministry talking to his disciples. Do you remember in John 12, 31, he said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Who was he referring to? Satan. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He again, uh, here again, we have reference to some sort of binding of Satan that did happen when Christ first came. And I want you to notice here in this John 12, 31 passage, the connection between the casting out of Satan and world missions. Again, now will the ruler of this world be cast out and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will do what? I will draw all people to myself. And this concept that Satan was bound at Christ's first coming also matches what we have seen communicated already in the book of Revelation concerning the restraint of Satan during the time between Christ's first and second coming. I have in mind here Revelation 12, uh, the barring of Satan from heaven as the accuser of the brethren as the, and the preservation of the woman and her offspring in the wilderness. Uh, the image that comes to mind is that of the dragon pursuing the woman into the wilderness and he vomits water out of his mouth to swallow her up and then all of a sudden God preserves her. The earth opens up and swallows up that great flood so that she be preserved. 
And so when, Kate, and so when Satan was uh, cast down from heaven, restrained and bound, when did all of this happen? The answer is at Christ's first coming. Not prior to the second coming, but in our future, as the post-millennialists say, and certainly not after Christ's second coming, as the dis- dispensational premillennialists say, but at Christ's first coming. And so, let me ask this further question. What are we to make of the fact that the text says he will be bound for 1,000 years, given that it is now 2018? Can you imagine living in A.D. Uh, 1000? You thought Y2K was bad, right? Um, you thought all of these uh, uh, predictions concerning the second... You, you know how it stirs things up. But can you imagine being alive at 100 A.D., uh, how the church would have been sent into a frenzy by these prophecy pundits, you know, and who, who are spreading the... And it did happen at around that time. Um, another way to ask this question is, is the number 1000 to be taken... Uh, literally, uh, put simply and briefly, the number 1,000, like every other number in the book of Revelation, is symbolic. I think the burden of proof is upon the literalist to prove that it is to be taken literally when every other number in this book has symbolic force to it. I would just urge consistency. If you insist upon the number 1,000 here being taken literally, then I would say you need to go the way of the Jehovah's Witnesses and also agree with 144,000 being taken literally as well. We did not do that then, nor do we do it now. The number 1,000 is symbolic. I want you to notice the obvious symbolism surrounding the mention of 1,000 years in this text. Satan is said to be a dragon and a serpent. Let me ask you this. Is Satan literally a dragon? Is he literally a dragon? Is that, is that the, the, the essence of his being? Is that his nature? Is he a dragon? No. It is symbolic. Is he a snake? Is that, is that what species Satan is? Is he a snake, a serpent? No, it is symbolic. Satan is not a dragon or a snake, but he is a spiritual being, a fallen angel. The scriptures make clear to us in other places. And, and when he is bound, notice that he is said to be bound with a chain and also shut up in a pit which is locked with a key. Is this to be taken literally? Is it possible to, 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 to bind Satan, this angel and spiritual being with a literal chain and a literal pit locked with a literal key. No, it also is symbolic. It symbolizes binding. It symbolizes some kind of restraint here. The passage is very clear as to what kind of restraint it is, but it is to be taken symboli, symbolically. Obviously, I combined those two words there, didn't I? So, brothers and sisters, it is far better to see that the number 1,000 is symbolic for a long but yet complete period of time. The number 1,000 is symbolic for a long but complete period of time. I want you to remember how Christ told the Christians at Smyrna that they would be tested and for 10 days would have tribulation, Revelation 2.10. Did that mean their tribulation would last for 10 days, literally? When we went through that text, we said, no, it's not that these Christians would experience literally 10 days of persecution, but instead it meant that they would suffer persecution for a relatively brief and limited time. God had set the beginning and the end of it. They didn't know when the beginning and end would be, but here the promise to them was that God knew it would begin and it would end and it would be a relatively brief period of time. And the same is true of the time... between Christ's first and second comings. Who knows how long that time will be? I'm asking you, literally. Who knows how long that time will be? 
The scriptures are very clear in other places that God the Father only knows how long it will be. Is it open-ended? No, it is not open-ended. In the mind of God, and according to the will and decree of God, it is set so it may seem open-ended to us. We don't know when Christ will return. If the scriptures are clear about anything, it's clear about that, right? Concerning eschatology, we don't know when Christ will return. Um, but God knows. Uh, the difference here between the number 1,000 and the number 10 is that the time is long. It is a long but complete period of time during which Satan is restrained by God and his people will be preserved. The gospel going to the very furthest reaches of the earth. If the 1,000-year period begins at Christ's first coming and ends at his return, which it does, then it cannot be literal, for Christ himself made it plain that no one knows the hour of his return. It must be symbolic. I have two points of application that come to mind based upon all of this uh, teaching. First of all, uh, these truths that we have now considered should produce boldness when it comes to world missions. Don't you agree? Satan has been bound, brothers and sisters, not completely inactive. Indeed, the book of Revelation is very clear that he does continually assault God's people. He does so through the beasts and the harlot who have been described to us in the book of Revelation. He, he does so continuously. Of course, he is active, but he has been bound so as not to deceive the nations any longer. In other words, go and get busy with the fulfillment of the Great Commission and do it with confidence, knowing that though Satan once had such a grip upon the nations, only Israel having access to the gospel promises, now Satan is restrained so that the mission that God has given us might indeed succeed. Shouldn't this give us confidence then in our proclamation of the gospel? From our human perspective, when we think about proclaiming the gospel, even to people here in this place, from our human perspective, we say there is no way that they will believe. They will never change their ways. They will never change their views. How are they ever going to repent of their sins when they are so stubborn against God now? Well, we do believe that because God's Spirit acts within the lives of men and women now, that there is hope and that God will indeed, if it be His will, bring them to salvation. The same is true concerning world missions. We might look at the text and say, how could it possibly be that we'll ever succeed? How will the gospel ever make inroads into this particular culture that has been so hostile to the things of God for so long? Well, it is possible because of the fact that God is at work. Satan has been bound so that it might be accomplished. Secondly, I think these truths should drive out fear in us. Um, I think this is so important, brothers and sisters, that we're, we're to recognize that the things that have been revealed to us in the book of Revelation have been revealed to us so that we might walk with confidence and with boldness in this world and without fear. Do you understand that? All that has been revealed to us, everything that the scriptures say to us concerning, yes, the assaults and the struggles that we will face in this world, but yet Satan is restrained and God is faithful to preserve his people. Therefore, we are to walk in this world with great confidence, with boldness, without fear. Fear is not becoming of a child of the king. Do you understand that? It is not right for us to live in this world timid and fearful, being dominated by fear and being restrained by it. No, instead, we should live with great boldness in this world, knowing that our king does reign, and he reigns not in part, but supremely. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. 
and Satan himself is bound and is restrained. God will preserve his people. I wonder if you've ever noticed this when talking to dispensational premillennialists about eschatology, about the time of the end, or about the book of Revelation more specifically. Have you ever noticed what they tend to say is this, that book is really scary. And they tend to be afraid of the idea of going through any kind of tribulation. Um, they look upon this subject, eschatology, they look upon it, the last days, whenever they talk about it, it's as if they're terrified of ever even beginning to experience these things. And for those of us who are amillennialists, we go, what are you talking about? Most of this is here now. We are now experiencing it. And the book was written to produce the very opposite thing in us. That is, it was written to give us boldness and confidence and courage in Christ Jesus. The reason that it produces fear in them is because when they think of the binding of Satan and this reign of Christ, they say, oh, wouldn't it be nice? And how wonderful that day will be when it finally happens, when it finally comes. But it is in the future, and we won't even be here perhaps to experience it. I don't know. We must wait till the millennium. We're saying, no, it's here now. The book of Revelation was written so that we might not be hindered by fear in this world, but so that we might live according to wisdom and in obedience to God, faithfully to the end, knowing that our King reigns and that He will preserve us to the very end. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. How lost we would be without it. It is a light unto our path. And we are grateful, Lord. As we walk in this world that is indeed dark, we pray that you would give us the faith that we need to walk according to your word. And when it comes to this subject here, the binding of Satan, who once kept the nations in darkness, but has now been bound so that the gospel might go forth, Lord, help us to believe these things truly. And to live not by fear, but in the confidence and courage of Christ Jesus, trusting always in Him. Lord, we know that You are sovereign over all, that You are accomplishing Your purposes, and that You will preserve us, even if we suffer greatly in this world. You will preserve us and sustain us on to the very end, Lord. And so I pray that You would remove from us all fear, all doubt, and replace it with courage and confidence in the promises of God. We thank You for Your Word, Lord. Help us to believe it truly so much so that we live by it, so that it affects our heart and so that it affects our behavior. God, help us now, we pray, for our good and for the glory of your name and all of God's people say, amen.